Hi, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading, and you're listening to the I Love Muzzleloading Podcast. This week, we're talking with Eric Van Alstein. Eric is a traditional leather worker that really focuses in on using historical tools and oftentimes original tools from the 1820s up to the 1900s. Eric has a lot to say about the history of leatherworking and where he gets his inspiration from. He is a real student of history when it comes to all of this. And he offers some really interesting perspectives about where he studies, where he gets his resources, where he you know finds originals to be inspired by to make clients and customers bags you know, at their request. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Um, Eric's a really nice guy and it was really great talking to him. And uh, I, I, I enjoy every episode really of, of the podcast, but um, you know, each one always feels, each one always feels really neat when we get done. So um, I, I really appreciate you listening and uh, enjoy the show. Hi, Eric. This is Ethan. How are you doing? Ethan, how are you? I'm doing good. I can't complain. How about yourself? Well, it's uh, it's wet here in mid-Missouri, so... <laughs> We've had our share of rain this year. Oh, I bet. We, we've had a lot more than I was expecting up here. The mosquitoes are terrible. <laughs> well, the ticks and the chiggers are pretty bad this year. The mosquitoes haven't been bad yet, but the, the ticks and the chiggers are a mess. Well, I appreciate you you know, reaching out and, and getting in touch with me. I'm, I'm really excited to talk with you. I, I really like your work a lot. <laughs> you do some great, great thank stuff. thank you. Thank you. You know, I, I've watched a lot of your stuff and uh, listened to a lot of the, you know, you know, the interviews that you do and, and the stuff that you put out there. And one of the things that I've noticed over time is, uh, you know, there's there's knife makers, there's, you know, there's rifle makers and there's even guys that work leather. But what I do is I do historic leather. Hmm. And. And if you would walk into my shop and everything and go through my. Uh, tools you would see tools that go back to um, about the 1820s on up okay and that's what I use uh, on a daily basis when I create things my only what I call my modern tools is scissors and harness needles and pretty much everything else is old antique tools uh, from the golden age of leather work mm -hmm. and that and that golden age happened or started in about 1826 and then you know it kind of you know went on up until uh, the early 1900s and so you know, all of my tools come from that time frame and and i do have one piece that goes back to about the late 1790s oh wow i don't i don't use it it just sits on the shelf and says you know it's pretty cool that it's that old yeah so, um, it's, when I look at, uh, I'm a student of history, American history, and I and derive a lot of stuff from there. And I see a lot of guys that sit there and say, "Oh, this is the way it was. This is the way it was." And you know, but they they miss out on the harness makers and the saddle makers and and how beautiful their work really was. Mm-hmm. And so I try to take what those harness makers did in, in the back, uh, what I call the mountain regions and everything, and, you know, recreate what they would have made okay. with, the, with the tools that they had. And so that's what makes mine look a little different than most. Hmm. So what would you say those, for somebody that's not seen your work, 
Uh -huh. You know, what kind of separates that out, you know, from somebody that would normally, you know, just kind of make some possible ba possibles bags, you know, or some pouches or something. Um, some of the accoutrements and you're, you're taking a, a different approach, you know, kind of to your inspiration and, and where you're drawing from. And what would you say those kind of key features would be? Those key features, if you would pick up a piece of old harness uh, hardware from, uh, you know, uh, even back in the 1950s, 1920s, even to the 1900s, pick it up and look at it. That's my stitching. Okay. Uh, I I learn from original harness stitching, saddle stitching, and everything. Um, you know, it's not just let's throw something together and, and make it look as ugly as possible because these guys that were harness makers and saddle makers and even your traditional uh, just, you know, men on the farm, they had leather tools. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and I have um, I have two of them. Well, I have four of them. I have four of them that actually came from Woodbury, Kentucky, and they are all handmade. Hmm. And they look handmade. But I can tell you that the number five will lay out five stitches per inch perfectly. Huh. The seven will lay out seven stitches per inch perfectly. The creasers are made out of hardwood, and they crease leather perfectly. These guys were, they were interested in making things look and work perfectly. Yeah. And, you know, even when you go back and look at some of the, uh, what I, uh, the old Fractar art from the 1700s, uh, and you look at some of the old scripts there, they're talking about that they, they, they were perfectionists and, oh, yeah. and their art and their craft. And, and that's what I try to do with my work is I like to have those bits and pieces of, uh, you know, that refinement in my work. Um, you know, I like laying down eight stitches per inch, 10 stitches per inch, because that's what those harness makers would have done. Mm -hmm. And it makes it look different. There's a lot of contemporary personal taste can sometimes affect how we perceive history. Um, you know, I'm not saying good, bad, or indifferent there. You know, I like stuff that sometimes is a little rough, but I also really love the fine artistry of it. Like when you get sure. down to that precision of it, because a lot of these original and cont uh, or original artisans and craftsmen, I mean, they were really good at it. <laughs> I mean, absolutely, they were trained. You know, old school apprenticeships, and they've been do they were doing that for years before they hit 20 years old. And yeah, by the absolutely. time they were in their 30s and 40s, they were masters at it. Yeah, and you know, when you look at the blacksmiths mm -hmm. of the day and you look at an apprentice, you know, by the time that he finished his apprenticeship with that master blacksmith, he had a full set of tools that he made himself before yeah. he left. And, you know, leather workers were the same way. They work leather and... Um, you know, they were, I mean, you see it today, even you can go out West and sit down with some of these old uh, saddle makers and they just make beautiful works of art. And, you know, 1700s, they had saddles. Mm -hmm. They had to have somebody make them. And, you know, it's a, it's a lost and dying art of what was. 
so I try to keep that alive uh, through you know, picking up old antique uh, leather working tools. Uh, my wife affectionately calls it the museum. Yep. Uh, because some of them are very, very rare, and you're you will not find them, no matter how hard you try to you know look for them. Yeah. And if you do find them, they're very, very costly. Um, so I employ all those in, in my work, and at the end of the day, it looks a little bit different than most, and that's that's why I like. So, and I'll also take old harness. Uh, you know, I, I when I'm driving up and down the interstate when we're going places, we pull into an antique store. If they have old uh, harnesses and hames and stuff like that, I buy them. Mm-hmm. And I take the old uh, hardware off of them, D rings, O rings, the buckles, and I employ those in, into my work as well. So you may get a, a pouch with a, uh, a McClellan buckle on it from the Civil War hmm. and because that's what I can find and that's what I put on them. So it, it just makes them a little different. Yeah. Is there a lot of that around where you're at or do you travel a lot to try to find, you know, original pieces like that? You know, I, I don't travel a lot. Uh, I, I would like to travel a little bit more and and. I'm starting to get to have a little bit more, uh, I guess, uh, opportunities to do that now that I've reached a, a certain age. Um, but, you know, the word is out there. You know, mm-hmm. I had a guy here several weeks ago just say, hey, I got this old harness hardware. Are you interested in it? And I said, sure, shoot me a picture. I said, how much you want for it? And he goes, ah, I just give it to you. <laughs> and, and, you know, in that... There was uh, there was a couple of buckles that came from you know the late 1800s, and to him it's just old rusted hardware. He, he doesn't need it. He doesn't want it. Yeah. And you can find you know interesting things. You just gotta you know keep your eyes out for them. Hmm. So is that the same for the tools then that you found, or are you kind of scoping out some you know? like estate auctions or, or I guess, you know, where do you find some of these specialty tools that you have and that you're employing in the shop? Well, you know, I started in, you know, a number of years ago, and there's a, a very famous pouch in Madison Grant's book. And being here from Missouri, I fell in love with it because it was found here in Missouri and mm. it was about 1820s. And it's a it's a very famous pouch. And on the front of that pouch, there is an, uh, what they call an apron. So it's kind of the back comes up and then they attach the front to it. has three weeping hearts in it. And it had pinking punches going across the top of it. Hmm. And years ago, I, I really took a liking to that pouch. And I said, how did they do that? How did they do that? And I, and I finally asked the right person. He says, well, that's made with a what they call a pinking punch. And I said, well, where can I get one of those? He says, you can't. <laughs> I said, what do you mean I can't? He, <laughs> says, he says, they haven't made those things for, you know, decades. And I said, really? And he says, if you ever find one, he says, grab a hold of it, you're lucky. Hmm. So I started uh, looking, and the more I looked, the more frustrated I became because I could not find one. And I happened to talk to uh, a gentleman out in Indiana, and he says, 
you may want to contact this guy out in California. And I said, okay, I will. And I said, you got any pinking punches? And he said, sure, I got them. And he said, what size do you want? And I'm like, they come in sizes. <laughs> and, you know, that's how, yeah. you know, uh, I was. And he goes, oh, yeah. And he said, they go from, you know, quarter inch all the way up to, you know, two inches. And I said, wow. And so I come to find out this guy scours the world over for these antique tools. He refurbishes them and then he resells them to collectors. He sells them to guys like me that like to use them on the bench uh, because the metal in those old tools, you cannot find that quality oh, yeah. today. No, you can't. And, and so I, at that time I was, I had a forge, had a blacksmith shop, made knives, made tomahawks, uh, you know, made camping gear and, and that type of stuff. And I looked at my wife and I said, I want to go in a different direction. She says, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to get into these old leather tools. And she says, well, how do you propose we do that? And I said, I'm going to sell the forge. <laughs> and I did. Oh, wow. I sold it. I, I sold that thing lock, stock and barrel. I even sold the uh, the coking coal I had and everything. And uh, out the door it went. It went pretty quick. And so I took that money and I started buying these old antique tools. And when I made something off of my work, I would take some of that money and I'd find a few more, find a few more, find a few more until I've got it, a, a pretty vast collection of old antique tools. Um, you know, I got it two tools that are actually marked uh, with the United States military insignia on them from the Civil War. Hmm. And I'm pretty sure one of them was used in, uh, you know, wagons that were on the battlefield or whatever, because there's a broken piece on it, but it's still got that stamp from the United States Army. Hmm. And it, it makes it really special and it still works today just like it did in the 1860s yeah so those are the fun things to have around in the shop just to say you know that's pretty cool i love old tools like that and yep. i love what you're talking about you know using these tools from the 1820s and, and a little further back because they still work and i really wonder how many things that we have today that we use on a daily basis you know a lot like these tools were used but will still be mm -hmm. working in 100 150 years you know just the way that they do now <laughs> and, and i don't think and you're not going to find that no you're not and you know these tools they all have brass ferrules on them they all have african rosewood handles that are all turned and they're just gorgeous and when these men and tool makers made these tools it was an art it was an art uh, for them and they made tools to last generations and you know a tool that was made in philadelphia back in the 1830s is still working on a bench today and you know that you just don't see that yeah you just don't so and so what I do is I look at a lot of um, historical references. Uh, I scour a lot of um, historical societies, especially in the East. And if you dig hard enough and long enough, you will come up with 
examples of old antique pouches and you know so on and so forth and so i i print those off and i do it with permission from those historical societies and i sit there and i study them i study those pictures no differently than somebody studying for a test Mm -hmm. and hours go into studying the stitching and everything um if somebody has an old example, I said, can I at least just take pictures and, you know, doodle some pictures of it or take some photographs and count the stitches and see how it was made? What type of stitching material did they use? And nine times out of ten, most of them are like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah. I had one guy, I had a guy from Alaska told me he had a, a West Virginia pouch and i said really could you take some pictures of it for me he said what's your address i'll send it to you he said just just send it back when you're done (laughs) and i'm like oh my you know do i really want to do this and it was such a educational experience getting this pouch yeah and, and touching it and feeling it and you know when you look at a lot of contemporary pouches today they're probably running about five six stitches per inch this one from west virginia they were doing 11 12 and 13 stitches per inch wow uh, i mean I, I get my calipers out and you know i start counting the stitches in an inch and you know and this was all done by hand this was not done on a machine because you got to think about what time frame the sewing machine came into existence in in america and that was about 1850-ish somewhere in there, about 1850, 1855, the sewing machine showed up. And, but before that, everything else was all Mm hand-stitched. And, you know, when you get into the 1860s and you get into that Civil War time period, you can pull up stuff and you can tell the difference between hand-stitched and machine-stitched at that point. Yeah. So... Yeah, and it was fun. This one here was made in the backwoods by probably some harness maker, and you could tell because it was running, you know, 12 stitches per inch in a lot of areas. Pretty neat. Wow. Yeah, we don't really think about that now because uh, we're so far removed from horses, but, I mean, there was an entire industry around everything dealing with horses. I mean, that was the mode of transportation for the day. That's right. And, you know... The advent of, uh, you know, the barbed wire didn't show up until about the 1890s. Hmm. And so uh, before that, it was all open range. Yeah. So when you look at uh, the time that, you know, the car and the truck and all that stuff started coming into American history, it wasn't that very long ago. No, it wasn't. It was kind of a blink, really, when you think about it. Yeah. When you think about how old the United States is... And, you know, when we saw the first automobile, you know, going down the road, uh, most of the other transportation was horse and buggy. Yeah. So, and those guys, and they were, there was harness makers, leather workers, probably in every town, just like there was a blacksmith in every town. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the sad thing is, you know, I had it. Somebody asked me one time. So, how many um, 
how many pouches do you think, uh, you know, hunting pouches uh, were out there? I said, well, oh, man. I don't know. I said, but let's ask this, how many surviving rifles are still out there? And they go, oh, probably thousands. I said, well, then there was probably thousands of hunting bags. And I said, the, the bad thing is, is it's, uh, you know, it's leather. It's organic. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, after it, it was more of a utility piece. And after they were done with it, it ended up in uh, some barn or a shed or wherever. And it got weathered, cracked, and thrown away. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're just kind of disintegrated with the with age, sure. you know. Absolutely. And, you know, we see that uh, even today. I, I, did a, I did a bench copy of a rifle sling for uh, an M1 Garand. Oh, wow. That this customer had. And he brought me the original um, strap that came with his M1 Garand, and it was stamped 1918. Oh, wow. So we're talking World War One. Yeah. And I said, you know, the strap, and the strap was in three pieces. And I said, there's no way I could fix this strap. I said, I can make you an identical bench copy of it. And so I contacted Herman uh, Oak Leather down in Spring uh, in St. Louis, Missouri, and I said, "Hey, this is what I have to do for this customer. It's a historic piece." I said, "This is the thickness of leather I need. This is how I need it built." And they said, "Okay, we'll we'll send you some leather." <laughs> and we recreated uh, that rifle strap, and we took the old uh, frogs off of that 1918 rifle strap and we recreated it and put it back onto this M1 Garand and it looks like it was made to be on that M1 Garand Hmm. because uh, the thickness of leather, the width and the holes and how far the holes were apart are identical. And that's the fun, that's the fun stuff that comes in. And it gets a little nerve wracking because you're, 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 you're messing with history in a way. You don't want to mess anything up. But in this case, there was nothing I can do with the rifle strap. And it turned out really, really nice. So, so uh, how did you get started in, in this leather work? Is it something you've always done or is it something that you've taken up, you know, kind of later in life? Well, I, I'm like a lot of guys. I kind of came in uh, on the the mountain man scene. You know, we're talking about the Lewis and Clarks and Mm -hmm. the John Coulters and the Jim Bridgers of the world and, you know, the westward movement. And I decided, you know, because I loved history, I said, you know, I want to know how they made things. And I found a gentleman that was really into the western mountain man stuff. And by the name of Dave Allen. And he taught me how to make knives. And so I was just, you know, years ago, I was just making knife after knife after knife. My wife says, now that you know how to make them, you don't need to buy one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's not how it works. (laughs) And then, you know, I said, you know, I I have this... uh, rifle and I have this knife and now I need this bag and my wife says figure out how to make one 
And I said, okay. And in my first one, I didn't know anything about leather. I didn't know anything about tools. I didn't know anything about construction. And I, I went to a secondhand store. I bought a black purse. I took the purse apart because it was leather. And I used that leather to make my very first pouch. And looking back at that pouch, uh, I would be ashamed to show it today. <laughs> and then, you know, I started looking and, and reading and learning and, and I kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And it's like anything else, Ethan, you just wake up one day and you find that sweet spot. Yeah. And you, and you get it figured out. And then you have other people come up and go, I like that. I like this or I like that. And, you know, I, I, I have a lot of people compliment me and, and I say, you know, I'm, I'm just a normal everyday guy that I just like to make them. I don't look at myself any differently than any other leather worker out there or anything of that nature. And I just got into it uh, just because the love of American history. And you know, I've always been that way. And I hope to continue it that way. So I'll just keep uh, looking at old leather work from the golden age of leather tools. And, and I'll keep studying uh, how they did things, how they designed them, and how they created them. Mm -hmm. But I just got started because uh, I liked Lewis and Clark and you know the Jim Bridgers and the John Coulters of the world. So, and, you know... It, my mentor at that time told me, he goes, oh, stay away from the Eastern stuff. And I said, why? He goes, oh, they're a little persnickety. <laughs> and, and, uh, it's not wrong. <laughs> so he said, stay on this side of the Mississippi. Uh -huh. And I was like, okay. And then I decided to go look on the Eastern side of the Mississippi River. And what I found was refinement. And that refinement, when you look at that division of, of um, the Western mountain man stuff and the Eastern, uh, you know, history stuff, there was a lot of refinement in the East. It, rifle stocks were much thinner and more uh, delicate. They had a lot more uh, artistic uh, on the patch boxes, they had mm -hmm. a lot more art, uh, artistic uh, work in the carving. You come to the west side, and you know we're talking a big old hawk and rifle. You know some of those things were just huge. Yeah. Um, and so then I started looking at uh, you know how they made the knives back east and how they made the tomahawks back east. And you can tell an eastern uh, artifact from a western artifact real quick yeah because the western artifact is heavier and clunkier and to me it just didn't have a lot of grace to it and so um, i i switched camps i went to the eastern side because uh, it suited me more mm -hmm. i'm working so. on a uh, i just recorded a video kind of on a, a um, it'll be out later this fall and kind of the broad history of of muzzleloading and, and really how, how it's tied into American history. And I'm, I'm curious as to what you attribute the difference in style in, because um, I have my theories on it and uh, I've really thought about it a lot the past few weeks, um, you know, kind of in relation to how America changed as we got across the Mississippi and, and 
started, you know, really settling in the West. You know, you had a lot of industry in the East coming, you know, into into function and, and starting to operate. But but what do you attribute that change in? You know, why is the stuff so different on the East Coast compared to the West Coast? Do you think? Uh, well, you know, I think that uh, number one is generational, and we can see it in just our everyday life today. You know, your your parents are a lot different than you are, and your grandparents are a lot different than your parents, and, and there was a different mentality and thought in those generational things. So when you look at early American history, it was truly a melting pot. You had the Dutch that came over, you had the Spaniards that come over, you had the Germans, and you had you know the English, and you had the Scottish and the Irish. They all brought with them those talents from their country. They brought those cultural uh, differences. So, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, like a, a Dutch Fowler, it's a lot different than, you know, something that was made uh, from Germany. Mm-hmm. They were, uh, you know, night and day. They just brought those traditions with them. And they congregated in those areas that were akin to their cultures. And that's why you have so many different schools, if you will. Now you can go into Pennsylvania, and you know you can start looking at a map, and you, you know you uh, you can look at Bedford County Rifle and say that's a Bedford County Rifle. <laughs> you can look at a Lancaster and say, well, that's a Lancaster. You can look at Christian Springs, and you can say that's a Christian Springs, and it's because they were the first ones here. They were the ones that brought that talent from um, where they came from to the United States. And then as things, you know, started to progress westward and everything, then those mixing of those cultures came into play. And by the time that you got to the 1820s, uh, we were highly mechanized mm-hmm. by the 1820s. And, you know, there was industry all over the place. And, you know, you look at, you know, what Lewis and Clark did back in 1804, 1806, and who they took with them. I mean, they uh, they took people from all over the, the uh, globe. Yeah, they came to America. It ended up on the you know the core of discovery, and that's how those things started to change. When Mountain Man went westward and everything, it was uh, you know we got to get out there. We got to get out there. They didn't have the time to sit there and build a beautiful Bedford County rifle. So, you know, you got uh, the Hawkins of the world and everything said, okay, well, we're going to make this utility-style rifle. We're going to make it a little bit heavier. It's not going to be fancy. Uh, I got to get these guys out to the mountains so that they can go trap uh, beaver and get those pelts, those buffalo and everything. So they weren't looking for that refinement. They were looking for, um, you know, a utility piece. Mm-hmm. 
And that's why I think that you see, I mean, you look at the beautiful powder horns from the east, and then you go look at something that went westward. Totally, it's night and day. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Night and day, and the pouches were the same way. You know, you didn't see uh, double pouches go uh, westward. They were big, heavy pouches and thicker leather and everything, and it was... I got to carry my stuff. I got to get going. I don't have time to wait. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's why you see the cultural differences, uh, you know, between East and West. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a, that's a great way to put it. I mean, there, there was a big change in that kind of, you know, 50 years between the, the revolutionary war and the 1820s. I mean, things, I mean, I can't imagine, I mean, my grandfather saw, you know, pre-World War II up to, to you know, Man on the Moon. And I, I can't imagine what that was like for him. But I, right. I I think that, you know, the Rev War to the 1820s was an incredible change, even more so than, you know, 1920s to 1970s, technology-wise. It's just... Well, <laughs> and, you know, even when you look at, uh, you know, when Lewis and Clark went westward, and, you know, they felt that it was going to take... You know, so many generations uh, to get, uh, you know, westward. Yeah. I mean, and they did it at such a rapid pace. So when you look at it, I think that those cultural differences and, and the difference between the East and West was born out of necessity. Yes, and, yes. And, you know, they, you know, they wanted a hawk and rifle because that thing was that thing was the four-wheel drive of rifles yeah yeah it was heavy it was strong it could withstand you know a lot of shooting and everything the stocks were heavier uh they were more straight grained and everything so that meant that they were a little bit i think a little bit stronger than you know some of that fancy wood that they had and that's what they wanted and that's what they got hmm so I think it was pretty much born out of necessity. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. Thor Bullets are a premium full-bore muzzleloader bullet designed specifically for modern inline rifles. Thor Bullets do not require plastic sabos or belts to be fired, meaning less cleaning for you between shots. The patented copper base creates an airtight seal, giving you greater distance and accuracy. Thor's unique engineering allows the bullets to retain 95% of their weight upon impact, and the controlled expansion ensures large, easy-to-follow blood trails. Thor bullets are currently available in a 50 caliber version that is sized to your specific bore. Thor is also expanding into a new 45 caliber bullet designed for faster 1-in-24 and 1-in-22 twist inline rifles. For more information on these great bullets, visit www.thorbullets.com. We'd like to thank Thor Bullets for their sponsorship of this podcast. So you talk about, you know, kind of this, the golden age in the 1920s of, of the kind of leather work that you really enjoy. What what really starts that era for you? You know, what are some of the the indicators? Well, Go ahead. Well, the actual the golden age of uh, of what I call leather working or leather tools started in about eighteen twenty six, and that's when um, you know you see the CS Osborne tools pop up, and that's when you see HF Osborne. 
schools pop up. That's when you see the William Dodds. And then, you know, you see uh, specialty people like a, a William Rose. You know, he made what they call a head knife, and he was out of Philadelphia. Then you can, you know, so these guys are producing them out of New Jersey. You know, New Jersey was uh, the integral hub for leather tools of the day. And they were making tools that you know, would provide that leather worker the ability to make things that they wouldn't have in the past. Mm-hmm. And different sizes and, you know, ornamentation uh, type tools and everything. Then when you start uh, looking at it, then they started to refine those tools. And then you see the Henry Gompfs of the world. And, you know, if you ask me, Henry Gompf was an artisan in his own self. And he started in about 1866 in and around uh, right after the Civil War. And his tools are totally refined. They still use the African rosewood and the ferrules and everything. But it's just the way he made them. And then, you know, they started to kind of die out about the 1920s. And the reason for that, I think, is, as we talked about, is, you know, the cars started coming in. And, you know, we became more and more mechanized. And mm-hmm. as we became more mechanized, the the need for uh, leather workers went on the decline. But that golden age of uh, those beautiful tools and everything, that, was, that kind of started in about uh, late 1820s. And it continued up in, for about 100 years. You still find them today. Hmm. Uh, still uh, on many leather workers benches and there's you know there's big talk whether you know are you a collector or are you a worker and it's almost blasphemy if you're a collector and you're using these tools and i said well i'm a collector and a worker yeah because i collect them because i use them and i always tell people if i can't use it it can't be on my bench <laughs> uh, it doesn't do me any good yeah uh, because you know I do have some customers that uh, have very discriminating taste and, you know, they're looking for that thing that just looks different. You know, when you go to a shooting match, you don't want to pull up on the line and see a pouch that looks like yours. Uh, You want something different. You want that um, piece that says, wow, that's really cool. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think uh, using those old tools gives it a little bit of a flair. And, um, you know, it, it just makes them a little bit different from the rest. Yeah. I think that's the nice thing about muzzle loading, at least for me, is, I mean, the, the rifles are neat and I love shooting them. But also, you know, all the gear around it is also really cool. And I love that so many things aren't the same. I mean, like you say, you can go up on the line or go to a camp or something and there might be some things that are similar or maybe somebody, you know, a couple of people have something from, from one person, you know, that you can tell the similarities, but there's sure. so much variety in it all that you can really have a collection that's unique of, of all the accoutrements and things. Absolutely. And that's the fun part of the, of the uh, long rifle culture. It's, 
it's different no matter you know you can go to a show and you know you can put your wares out there and you may do very well and you may not do very well just depends on who's looking and what they're trying to put together Mm -hmm. so i always try to ask the customer you know uh, most of mine that i get to do you know the customer says hey um i want this and then i say what do we what type of rifle are we pairing up here and so then i get them to talk about what they have and you know hey i i I like this old bean style rifle, that Southern mountain rifle and everything. And I said, well, let's talk about that for a minute. You know, what kind of powder horn do you have? What kind of caliber of, you know, bat, uh, you know, rifle do you have? So I really get into what they have. Yeah. And then I start, you know, making things or making that pouch around that style of rifle. And sometimes I have guys say, I got this knife I want to put on the back. And for me, those are the fun projects because now I got something to work with and I can incorporate what that knife is going to look like on the back of that pouch. And it kind of drives what that pouch looks like because I want that knife to look like it is married to that pouch. Yeah. And I, I don't like taking something... Uh, you know, that is a uh, hundred years difference in style and saying, yep, that looks like it's right. And I, I try to match things up so that it looks like it's in the right time frame, right style, and, you know, the persona that they're looking for. Because if they say, hey, I'm a persona of a you know professional soldier, everything in their reenactment stuff, I'm not going to make them an early uglies bag. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, you know, because they're not going to be satisfied with it. Mm-hmm. I want to make something that maybe a militia may have had. And if they say, no, I'm just, uh, I'm just that poor backwoods fellow and everything. Got it. Not a problem. We can make that work. What type of rifle do you have? And, you know, they'll tell me, well, I got this, you know, such and such rifle okay well we'll match up a you know, a pouch to go with that rifle so i try to get into uh, the mind of you know the customer yeah then i get to, then i get to ask them really uh, simple questions what side do you like to wear it on do you like your buckle in the front do you like it in the back do you like no buckle at all and you know how long of a strap do you want do you want it up on your rib cage do you want it hanging down around your waist I want them to be happy with what they have, and but I'll stay with traditional styles and standards and everything. And you know, if somebody says, you know, I, you know, I want the, you know, Harley Davidson insignia. No, I'm sorry, I'm not your guy. <laughs> <laughs> I think you that's know, uh, That's for the best, and, I think. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and I've had people do that. You know, I want this on the front. I'm sorry, I, I don't do that. Yeah, um, I stay very traditional with everything that I have, and uh, because I wanted to look the part of you know what they're convey everything. Yeah, so I think that's important. It's not what if I make a piece and I just sit down and say, "Hey, I'm in the mood to make a you know a double pouch today," and 
yeah, I'll use my own creative juices, but I want to be able to take that customer focus and put it into their stuff. And they say, wow, when they can tell me that, you know, then I've done my job. So are you doing all this full time or are you, you got a day job or you, you know, yeah. do I have a day job? Well, um, a week ago I, I was able to retire. Oh, congratulations. Uh, and so, uh, what I do is I call it a hobby and it's kind of a hobby that just kind of pays for its own self. So when I, you know, make something, I'm not making anything off of them really. I'm just a a guy out there that enjoys history and, and and it just fuels my passion to, you know, do better and everything of that nature. So, um, I just take it as I go. I, and I'm not one of these guys that can whip out a pouch in a day. I just can't because when I do my work, there's probably about six to eight hours worth of just historical research that I do. Yeah. If a guy says, I want a double pouch that came about 1810, from North Carolina, and this is the type of rifle I have, I have to go start looking at that rifle. I have to go start looking at what was going on in 1810 in North Carolina. What kind of materials did they have? What kind of this, that, and the other thing did they have? So there's about eight hours of work right there. Mm -hmm. And then I I design all the patterns uh, and everything, and that's another, you know, four to six hours just kind of doodling patterns out. And it first goes on a piece of notebook paper, and that notebook paper goes to copy paper, and that copy paper goes to card stock, and that card stock goes to poster board. So there's a whole process there. And, and, uh, and then, you know, then the magic starts working in, you know, getting that thing cut out and everything. And, and, making it look like it's going to be a pouch and that and that in itself it takes me some time because i wanted to make sure that i'm doing the stitching correctly and then when it comes to the antiquing part ethan i will tell you it takes me three days to do the antiquing part mm-hmm. three full days i can believe that and then when i walk away from it i gotta walk away from it and I come back the next day and look at it, review it, make sure I didn't miss any spots, make sure that that stitching is still the way I want it. And then we go to the next step. Mm. And we finally take it to the last step. And before it goes in the box and sends out to the customer, it gets a once-over. It gets a real good once-over. And that once-over is probably about a good couple hours just looking at it, feeling it, touching it, making sure that it's just right. Um, you know, there's a lot more into for me personally to just stitch up a you know a couple pieces of leather and tie it up and send it out. I can't do that. Yeah, it's a you know when you look at some of the other artisans out there, you, know, you can uh, look at. Uh, uh, Herschel House, uh, Daniel Casey, you can look at uh, Andy Hawkins. These guys don't go hammering out a knife in a day. 
Yeah. They just don't. There's a couple days worth of work, and that's full-time work. When you go and look at some of these guys that are building these beautiful, beautiful rifles and pistols and everything, they're not cranking them out in uh, a day. They're not doing them in a week. There's a lot of work and preparation that goes into it. Yeah. And so I've taken cues from those guys, and I said, if they can take an enormous amount of time of research and everything, I need to do the same thing. And that's what I do. Mm-hmm. So it's a process. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate you sharing that because uh, I have a, an artistic background, and so I the side of all of this that I really enjoy is the, you know, handmade artisan made, um, you know, stuff that takes hours and hours and days and days. Uh, but I, I like what you said there, you know, it, to me, it kind of touches on what we talked about earlier about the generational differences. When you talk about the East and the West, you know, the, the folks that are making bags pretty quick, getting them out to people, uh, they're very different compared to your bags, but they're, right. you know, possibly more utilitarian, much like those Western bags and those Western tools were. And right. it all kind of ties in, you know, you're, you're very much the contemporary version of the people and the artisans that you were studying and you're serving right. that same, that same clientele nearly. You know, somebody said it and, and I just love the quote. Uh, I just stand in the shadows of the masters before me. Mm-hmm. That's and, great. And I look at them. Uh, and I study them and I get to know them. And it, there's a lot of times I get a bag done for a customer and I'm like, boy, do I really want to let this one go? <laughs> you know, can I just hang on to it for a little bit? Uh, and, you know, there's always been, there's, there's a handful of them I wish I never sold. And, uh, but, you know, the good thing is, is if I, uh, I really want to, I can go make another one. Yeah. But uh, every one of mine is pretty different. Uh, They may be in the same shape, but there's a lot of differences in them. Every one of them is different. And and I think that's another aspect that I like is they're not all the same. I like that variety because I think that each rifle needs a different bag. And, you know, there's some guys that are running a 36 caliber rifle and they have a bag for that. And there's one guys that are got another rifle, maybe it's a 50. And he says, well, I want this for my bag or that for my bag. And so there's some guys that have four or five bags, just like they have four or five rifles. Yeah. Different things. And they're all made differently. And, and that's the fun part about it. But I look at it as an artistic outlet. And, you know, I don't look at it as uh, anything other than history and art. And that's how I focus on it. I get to work with historic uh, tools. I get to look at uh, history that came from the past in the East and in the West sometimes. And then I get to say, now I've got all this information. Let's go make something that looks really neat. Hmm. And, you know, I, I just like that uh, freedom to be able to do that. So, and, you know, when I start a pouch, somebody will ask me, how long is it going to be? 
talk to you later on this month. <laughs> you know, it, it just it really it does because yeah, I'm not. And there's some guys that can walk right out in their shop and they can go and they can hammer out or you know cut out, stitch up, and send out a, a pouch in a day, day and a half. I can't do it. I just can't. It's not in me. Yeah. It takes time. So you know, it, when you look at all the great uh, artisans of the world, they don't whip stuff out in a day. They just don't. And, you know, so when I help people and teach people, I always tell them, slow down, take your time. It's not a race. And, you know, some guys get frustrated with that. Some of them take it to heart. You know, they get, they get a better outcome. They get a more harmonious outcome, I guess. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, but, you know, it's just a passion. It really is. It's a passion. Well, Eric, I, I appreciate you sharing all this with me. This has been a great conversation, and it really adds a lot of enjoyment for me, you know, when I look at your bags here on Instagram and, uh, you know, knowing your story behind it all and, and how much you care and how much you put into each bag. It just makes it all the, it makes it all the better looking at them. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it's when you see one of my bags, you're not going to see another one like it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's kind of part of the, the fun stuff for me. And, and when I get done with a pattern, it goes right into the trash. Oh, really? And it does. Uh, I don't save my patterns. I have one pattern. I take that back. I have one pattern that I saved, and that was from a gentleman that, uh, that taught me some really neat stuff. And he lent a pattern to me and said, it is now yours. And so I keep that one just because it's a really cool pattern. But all the ones that I do, after I'm done with them, they go right into the trash because, you know, the next guy down the line, he wants something special Mm -hmm. for him or her. And they get the same, uh, you know, opportunity and respect that the last guy had. And I think that that's only fair. Mm Mm-hmm. That way, they get the same process that I went through with, you know, the last hundred pouches that I've made. So it's uh, it's not a die cut or anything like that. Say, so, well, I want a pouch like this one. Well, I can get close, but it's not going to be exact. Yeah. Because because I throw them all away. <laughs> Each one's unique, then. Every one of them is unique. Every one of them is. Well, I guess to, we're hitting close to the hour mark. Uh, you know, uh, where can people find you online to, to check out your work and you know and reach out to you if they're if they're looking for something special to, to add to their kit? Eric's work is available to view on Instagram under the tag Ironweed underscore Leather. He recently changed his name, and I want to make sure that we get the correct name for his Instagram. You really want to check out his work here. And I'm over on Facebook. And just under Eric Van Alstein. And I'm on a lot of the groups out there on Facebook. And you'll see my stuff out there in kind of the main groups for the long rifle culture. Uh, they can always get a hold of me anytime. Uh, they can write me at eric.vanalstein at gmail.com. I'll always reply back. And uh, they can always give me a call as well. 
That's great. I'll put all the, your contact information there and kind of the show notes that go with the podcast so that people can check it out and, uh, and get in touch with you. That's great. I'd appreciate it. And, you know, like I said, uh, I really enjoyed the time that we've had here. We got to talk about a lot of neat things. And if anybody has any questions, they can always get a, get a hold of me. Yeah. Will you by chance be at the CLA show this fall? Um, not this year. Okay. I have some other commitments and everything, uh, but we'll see what happens next year. I, I do do several small local shows around here uh, in the Missouri area. Um, and I'm you know, usually pretty uh, accessible and anybody can come out to my shop. When oh, the cool. American flag's flying, I'm there. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> All right, bud. We'll talk to you soon. We'll see you. like to thank Eric once again for coming onto the show. He reached out over Instagram a few weeks ago and wanted to get in touch. And uh, I really jumped at the opportunity to talk to him. And you'll find that if you message me on Instagram and you want to talk about muzzleloading, history, artisanship, craftsmanship, anything related to muzzleloaders, I'm probably going to jump at the bit and, uh, and try to schedule a call with you. So thank you, Eric, for taking that initiative and reaching out. If you want to follow Eric's work, get in touch with him. We'll have links to uh, how to get in touch with him in the show notes down below. We'll also have all of this at ilovemuzzleloading.com. You can check out some more photos of Eric's work and, uh, and really get up close and personal with uh, his fine craftsmanship here. Whether you're a new listener, if you've been with the program for a while now, I'd just like to say thank you. This has been a passion project for me for quite a while now. And um, I'm just each day, I guess, more excited about muzzleloading the, the more I, I talk with and meet with muzzleloaders all over the country. This is a really exciting time for muzzleloading, especially in the United States. I think we're seeing, uh, you've heard me say it a ton before, we're seeing a great resurgence, I think, in muzzleloading. And it's just fantastic to be be here with all of you and and share that excitement. My family's been involved in muzzleloading since the 1920s, and um, it's just really special for me to to know that there are people out there that are listening and enjoying it. Um, you know, it it's just a real it's had a real positive impact on me and my family. So I, I really appreciate all the support, everybody listening and watching. So uh, I just you know it's kind of sappy, but I just want to say thank you. It's, it's been fantastic, and I'm really excited for, for what we have planned here for the rest of the year and, and even into next year. I think uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, and I, I hope that you stay along for the ride. Once again, I'm Ethan, and I love muzzleloading. Thank you so much for listening, watching, and reading, and uh, we'll catch you next time. In business, you rarely hear the expression, for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com.